0: I think it goes back to like kind of our primal roots of course you know like meat and fire uh, it's pretty as basic as it gets uh, it's about as complicated as I get too for me steak is kind of like a nostalgia as is barbecue um, in Texas but yeah I think we're just kind of used to it and it's it's kind of a comfort food for everybody
1: you're listening to the taste podcast I'm editor-in-chief Matt Rodbard here with senior editor Anna Hiesel
2: On today's show, Matt's talking to BBQ superstar Aaron Franklin, whose latest book is Franklin's Steak. Later on, you'll hear Matt hosting a conversation in Los Angeles about coffee with... Who did you talk to?
1: This is... Anyone who uh, drinks coffee out there knows about coffee. Epic lineup. Jeff Watts, vice president of coffee at Intelligentsia Coffee. Kyle Glanville, co-founder of Gogundum Tiger. Christopher Nicely, Abel Alameda, co-owner and head barista at Minati's And Browen Serna, an educator at Counterculture Coffee. What a lineup that was.
2: Incredible. But let's talk about steak for a second.
1: Yeah. Aaron Franklin, man, he's famous in Austin for barbecue. But really, his latest book tackles steak.
2: How is this book going to change my cooking at home steak game?
1: He really he takes a second look at a lot of these conventions and this conventional wisdom. Um, one thing he he really talks about it are those really like 1980s Applebee's commercial grill marks that you see on steaks. It's like the steak emoji. Anna, shocker, you don't want those grill marks on your steak.
2: So you're telling me that right now in 2019, grill marks are bad. Yes,
1: Anna, you want crust all over your steak. You don't want it in specific grill mark area. It was quite the conversation with a modern meat master.
2: I have a lot to learn. Here's Matt with Aaron Franklin.
1: Aaron Franklin, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Heck yeah. Thanks for having me. It's great to see you. Um, The book was originally going to be called Steak AF. Is that true or false?
0: Oh, I really wanted to call it The Steaks Are High, Um, (laughs) but then we didn't know if that was true or not. De
1: La Soul record?
0: Well, you know, um, reference maybe? No, no, not a De La Soul reference, unfortunately.
1: Darn. Uh, Darn. But still good. I should have known that. I should have checked the email. (laughs) So but it ended up being uh Franklin Steak, right? Yep. Is that what it's called? Franklin Steak, right? Yeah, now? we also wanted to call it steak out, but thought that was probably
0: taken. Yeah, there probably. were a lot of terrible ideas, but anywho, we we finally landed on Franklin's steak.
1: Yeah, it's it's a it's a really cool book. It's a it's kind of a continuation um, from the barbecue book, which is a massive bestseller, but also just such a cult favorite. I, I just want to backtrack to that right now. Are you seeing still a lot of people sending you Instagrams to them building their barbecue sets? Oh, for sure. Um, yeah, when Jordan and I did the first book, you know, really
0: what we wanted to do was like, well, you know, don't really need recipes, I need this. Uh, but we really wanted it to be like one of those books that's just always on the kitchen counter, yeah. you know, that's torn up, it's got grease stains all over it and barbecue sauce splatters on it. Um, and I think it's actually turned into that, uh, which is really, really cool because we still hear yeah. so much feedback from it and, you know, people you know, Instagramming pictures or like, check out my first brisket, you know, and stuff like that. <laughs> that's so, so cool. And you respond cool. and
1: you inter- interact with them. I see that a lot. So that's nice. Uh, tell me why then we're moving on to steak. Why Is that a natural progression from barbecue for you?
0: Well, for me, it was because I kind of started with, you know, really long cooks and, yeah. you know, expensive, not steaks, not expensive, but like really like big pieces of meat, long cooks and losing sleep and all this stuff. <laughs> so it seemed like a natural progression for us to do something a little bit you know easier at the end of working on the on the barbecue book mm-hmm. um you know we kind of get done with that and we cook at Rams and stuff yeah. and just like oh just go grill steak right. it was so it took so much less time uh, but we found ourselves getting really passionate about steak. Completely. And uh, it it did seem like a natural progression. Probably backwards for most people.
1: Yeah, I would think so. But you do talk about dry aging, which is actually uh, probably longer than or is longer. Well, it definitely it's takes longer. Several <laughs> d- months longer. But um, I want to know just like, is, it, is what's it about beef that really excites you? We're, we're, you're a beef guy.
0: Well, I did grow up in Texas. So hey, I guess I've got that going for you me. you as got that. Um, as State pride. Jordan. Um yeah it's kind of it's in my genetics. um I don't know. I mean, beef is awesome. I mean, I, I really yeah. that's always been kind of my favorite. and uh, I think it's it's interesting enough because there's just so many different muscles, and not that I'm a butcher or anything, but mm-hmm. you know, like a brisket is tricky because it's got mm-hmm. two muscles and you've got all these different steak cuts, and they all cook different. I think you know, texturally it's it's really interesting because the different fats melted different in different yeah. ways and stuff. Um, I don't know. It's just kind of like a really interesting type of food, I
1: think. And we have amazing beef in America. Like, we do. Wave, I'm going to wave the flag because honestly, we really are having we both have traveled throughout the world, and we just have for 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 the price, we have great beef, right? I mean, yes and no. Oh, I love it. Um, I think, but yeah, I mean, we're we're lucky in this country to
0: have some pretty pretty incredible stuff. Yeah. Um, but there's really great beef all over the world. I mean, you go yeah. to, you know, all over Europe. I mean, these cows are eating you know mm-hmm. like field peas and. Grazing on the sides of mountains and getting the sun on only the left sides of their bodies. I mean, there's all kinds of cool stuff <laughs> yeah. going on. So, you know, kind of like barbecue has a regionality. I mean, yes. beef really does, too. Yeah. Um, and we're lucky here in this country to have a lot of that stuff. We've got some great land out there.
1: Yeah. Good point um, Point taken. I think definitely if you go to Japan, of course, the beef there is probably the most exquisite in the world. Yeah, but totally different.
0: I mean, it yeah, tastes completely sure. different. Even though it's got, you know, higher fat content, like the flavors are, are totally different, too. Yeah.
1: You offer it's very prescriptive you offer a lot of um, ways to cook steak uh, and you myth bust quite a bit so I want to we can talk about I don't want to give away the whole book but I just want to like in general um I wanted to hear a couple um how are we cooking steaks wrong Aaron Frank Well I
0: don't know that we are anyone is I mean you know I think aside from like dipping in a you know Pot of boiling water and overcooking it, like that's pretty wrong. <laughs> yeah, um, I don't know that there's really a wrong way. I yeah. think there's maybe just more right ways. Um, it's kind of how I would look at it. Yeah, um, you know, I never be like, ah, oh, you're doing that wrong. It's terrible. Uh. Um, but I think it's neat to. You know, and one thing we tried to do with the book was. And we didn't really go into this book with a hard outline. It's like, well, this is a myth that we need to disprove or prove or Completely. whatever. We just kind of let the steak tell us where to go with it. Yeah. Um, and we learned a lot. And our path changed considerably throughout cooking all this stuff. I mean, Jordan and I probably cooked over 100 uh, New York strips and yeah. developed all kinds of just like, well, well, this happened. I didn't see that happening. Um, but we kind of found more right ways to do it, Yes. Yeah. And, you know, some of those would be, for example um, – you know, like salting a steak 30 hours in advance, 24 hours yeah. in advance, 48 hours, 72 hours. I mean, we did all kinds yeah. of experiments and uh quickly found that that was, you know, kind of 30-hour mark-ish um of pre-salt at 1.58% by weight was, like, I thought, like, the perfect way to do a steak and air dry it in the fridge. Um, Didn't see that coming. It just kind of happened. Yeah, yeah. Um So I don't think there's, like, a wrong way. I mean, sometimes you just got to pull a steak out of the fridge and— Throw it in a skillet and cook it because you need dinner. But yeah, if and you you've bu- got the time. Of course, there's some cool mm-hmm. cool things you can do.
1: And speaking of time, it struck me um, about resting the steak. You are not. People seem to be really talking
0: about that a lot. That's interesting.
1: I think, and you write really beautifully about how there are no rules about resting. You may have in your family a history of resting. Your grandfather rested the steak for thirty minutes with great ceremony, <laughs> and you shouldn't say, "Hey, Grandpa, you were fucking wrong," because that's like just kind of rude. Well, it's rude. It's rude. Don't it's, tell old gramps he's wrong. You both said it's rude. It, it's you know. rude. So, but but still, you came upon this conclusion that resting is maybe not.
0: Well, rude. it is still resting. Um. You know, I mean, you have to think about the size of a piece of meat. Like, obviously, like, a brisket is yeah. huge. I know we're talking about steak book, yeah, but sure. it's for good contrast. Um, you know, like, a brisket might go on at 15 pounds, 10 pounds. I mean, that's a giant piece of meat, um, and it cooks a long time. It's got a lot of momentum. So, yeah. obviously, the resting period might be two, three hours for that before it kind of comes up to temp and then starts to drop, but... Yeah. Um, but you don't have to rest a little steak that long. I mean, if it's like a little flank steak or filet or or, or something like that, it can totally rest while it's on the plate on the way at the table. It's just not that big of a piece of meat. So mm-hmm. I think resting, everything should rest for a little bit, but it should kind of coincide yeah. with the size and the momentum that it's got. And also, I mean, if you're cooking a piece of like a, you know, maybe a, a strip or or a ribeye or something like super rare, doesn't have much temperature going on anyway. You don't need to rest it. You don't need long. to.
1: And that's a probably a great way to cook a ribeye. Yeah. Let's and I mean. think,
0: you know, like for resting, if you can touch it and you can cut it, it's ready to eat. Yes. That's totally going to.
1: That make. is the takeaway. Shouldn't be too precious. Exactly. And then on the flip side, on the, on the other side is just the tempering or bringing to temperature. Yeah, totally. That's a little bit of uh, a thing that you've come up with. Yeah, and that's pretty normal. Um, so tell us the tell us the actual prescription.
0: Well, I guess kind of the if you think about it, that's the way I think of barbecue too. But if you kind of like you don't necessarily want to put an ice cold piece of meat in a ra- on a raging hot grill, and you do not necessarily want to slice up a raging hot steak, you know, right on a ice cold plate. I mean, just kind of like let things ease into where they're going to mm-hmm. be. So, um, you know, it, it on steak it kind of goes if you're thinking about the surface the piece of meat and how you want the inside cooked. Like, all right, so I want the outside to be really crusty, want the inside to be super rare. Obviously, maybe it should be pretty cold when you put it on, so you might just pull it right out of the refrigerator. But if it's a huge piece of meat, like a giant tomahawk Mm -hmm. or something like that, you've got, it's going to take a long time to get the center where you want it cooked right, but you don't want to get the outside too crusty or you don't want to burn it. You probably want to temper it. And that Mm -hmm. means let it sit on the counter, not for long enough where it's going to make anybody sick or go Mm -hmm. bad or anything. Mm -hmm. Uh, But maybe like, 30 minutes, maybe an hour at 60 degrees. I mean, that thing's 32 degrees coming out of the refrigerator. Yeah. It's going to take a while to kind of warm up to room temperature. So that stuff makes a huge difference.
1: But most of the steaks we're cooking, we're not cooking these giant cuts. We're cutting... Well, we it. are down in Texas. Yeah, down in Texas, yeah. Everything's yeah. bigger. <laughs> but I think it, in general, pulling it out of the fridge and cooking it is not like that bad of a... It's not terrible. Um,
0: it could be done, but it makes you mm. kind of want to think about how hot should my skillet be if, if it's a strip yeah. that's two inches thick. You might want to start off at a slower temperature so you give the meat time to kind of yeah. just guide it in that direction.
1: We we've talked for fifteen, ten minutes about cooking steak I could and probably you, talk all day. We could probably talk all day. But like why do we as a culture just love talking about the cooking of steak? It's it's a we we're not talking about like endive in the same way. <laughs>
0: well, you know. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think it goes back to like kind of our primal roots, of course, yeah. you know, like meat and fire. It's sure. pretty as basic as it gets. Uh, it's about as complicated as I get, too. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think everybody kind of grew up, you know, in this country, grew up in the Midwest, probably eating steaks and kind of wherever you grew up. I think for me, steak is kind of like a nostalgia as is barbecue um, in Texas. But yeah, I think we're just kind of used to it. Mm-hmm. It's, it's kind of a comfort food for everybody.
1: Uh, you compare sous vide steak cookery to the Japanese bidet style toilet. (laughs) Thanks, Jordan.
0: Really got me to pickle on this one. Um, yeah, I think so. I wouldn't quite go that far, maybe, but, um. (laughs) The book does. Jeez. I think you slipped that in after we talked about it. Um. But it has a point in them. No, it does. So kind of the thing, I think a lot of people get crazy on Cuvia, like, oh, it's the best way to cook a steak. But it doesn't really impart any flavor. You're cooking something in a plastic bag. Um, and texturally, that's really cool. But it's hard to get flavor. You know, like you get a grill or you've got Maillard reaction in a hot skillet or you've got butter um, that you can kind of poilet on there or whatever. Um, you know, you're imparting flavor in this piece of meat. You're kind of coaxing certain things out of it. you got salt and all this stuff. But in a bag, it's just – you've got a really perfectly cooked piece of meat. Yeah. But I don't know that you're ever going to get, like, that rosemary butter no. note out of that after you sear it on a grill. Yeah, that um, quick,
1: quick, quick sear.
0: Yeah, yeah. and I also – I mean, cooking-wise, you know, and CV's is great. And if, if you're cooking for a lot of people, obviously, that's a, a great way to feed a lot of people a massive amount of mm. food. Um, but I kind of – on a personal level, I kind of like the gradient. I don't like it like hard sear – and then two inches or an inch and a half or whatever of perfectly cooked medium. Like, I like the the textural differences in there. Mm-hmm. I like kind of gradient where it's like good crust, then it's a little overcooked, and then it gets kind of rare. Yeah. Um, I mean, I texture think really is such cool. a big
1: part of it. It's of a huge food. part.
0: It's like the yeah. biggest part of steaks, I think. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I think that's kind of what you lose. I think you kind of lose the craft a little bit in sous vide. Uh, but another cool thing that you can do along those same lines is kind of what some people call a reverse sear, um, which is what you would do with a sous vide thing anyway. Um, but you can kind of bring something up real slow in an oven. You could kind of bring it up real slow on a grill, get some smokiness, get some charcoal kind of flavors, um, let it rest, and then sear it off when your friends show up. Um, same principle, just kind of different execution. Yeah,
1: it's slow cookery than that but
0: final stator. there's a time and a place for everything.
1: For sure. And I like also you talk about grill marks, like those iconic lines. Probably there was an emoji <laughs> for a steak. They would put the grill oh, marks. Oh, sure there is. But you're talking about grill marks not really being indicative of great steak.
0: Not necessarily. I uh, I secretly... Every time I grill a steak, I try to make, like, those super, like, 80s-looking grill marks, you know, like <laughs> a Nighthawk TV dinner, yeah. uh, like perfect crosshatch, yeah. and I do it, and then I just start flipping the steak a bunch and totally cover them up because it really yeah. just doesn't matter that much. Um, and I think you can cook a much better steak by flipping back and forth a bunch of times as opposed mm-hmm. to that one side. It overcooks a little bit, and then you flip it. It's, like, just a little bit, little bit, little bit, kind of inch in. Um, but if you're cooking like that, it's really hard to get really great grill marks. Although they are pretty,
1: they are pretty. They're great for the gram. But you do kind of mention like the whole top layer should be a grill mark, right? I mean, kind of. Yeah, it's just that's the great texture that's, you're looking for. Yeah. Um, I think I want to talk a little bit about your barbecue business because it still is kind of going strong, right? Your guys are selling. Yeah, so cute. people definitely showed up. It's cool. What's the status of the cutting the line policy at Franklin these days? Well, there isn't one. Oh. Um. You can't cut the line.
0: No, no, it is definitely not a thing. That's what I thought. I um, I love it. You I know, love
1: that about you.
0: Everybody kind of, I got to do a show up. It's not that hard. <laughs> <laughs> now, you might have to wait for a little bit, but it's fun. I think, um, you know, if you're really trying that hard to skip the line, maybe you're kind of missing out on just kind of the big picture of it. And it's not nice for other people.
1: Just... No, it's not nice, it's equal and you get to have fun in that line, throw some footballs around, maybe have some brown spirits.
0: Yeah, totally. <laughs> I love that about your Absolutely.
1: Restaurant. What do you what are you serving right now at your at your restaurant?
0: Exactly the same thing we've always served. Okay, cool. Uh just, just five meats, three sides, pies. Oh, that's it. Yeah.
1: You're happy with it? You like it? You like what you're doing?
0: Oh, it's great. Um I think the steak was a bit of an extension on that because we do the same thing every day at Franklin Barbecue. It's like to try to make the best brisket we can, but it's yeah. just one piece of meat, um, and ribs and turkeys and all this stuff. Um, and steak, I think we were like, Oh, what's what's next? What's next? It's like, Well, I learned how to cook steak, and <laughs> I guess we wrote about it.
1: Yeah, and it's a natural progression. I wanted to get back to steak and talk about marbling because I think there is some truth and false about marbling and the importance of marbling. Is it important, Aaron Franklin? Is yeah, yeah, important? it's definitely important. Um, so there are different types of fats, and
0: I think the kind of a lot of I've heard. People think it's like, oh, fat makes everything good. Fat, 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 need more fat. Um, but the reality is there are different types of fat. I mean, there's some kind of pretty gross fat out there that I don't want to eat. No. Um, but that doesn't mean I don't like a heavily marbled steak. Um, so I think it depends on what kind of texture you want out of a piece of meat. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think that goes into like a fillet versus, you know, like a ribeye. Yeah. And everybody kind of it's like, oh, ribeye's king, ribeye's king. It's got so much fat. Um, but textually, I kind of like a fillet. And even though it doesn't have a lot of natural fat in there, I think there's a way to kind of replace that sort of get more flavor. Um, But, yeah, a highly grated piece of meat is always best. Beautiful. And Um, I
1: like that you write about the rise of the ribeye and how the filet has kind of been put put Oh, everybody makes
0: fun of the filet. Yeah. It's a nice little piece of meat, though.
1: It's delicious. It's it's, it's, It's like butter. Exactly, like butter. I mean, you want to have that really tender piece of steak sometimes.
0: Yeah. Sometimes you can have a ribeye. And a filet on the same plate and just kind of go back and
1: forth. That's dope. Yeah. I think you get texture and you get the butter. You get like multiple textures, is what I'm trying to say, with with both yeah, those cuts. Yeah, sure. Uh, but it is nice to have a prime or a better graded uh, filet, though. Have you tinkered with uh, like dairy cows, like Holstein's cooking? Yeah, them? totally. Talk about that because I think there's a lot of. Uh, t- you know talk about um you know it's it's humane it's a use of meat that oh maybe we would i be think using. those
0: are so, some of the best steaks i've had have been from old like 10 plus year old dairy cows um and they don't have much fat that's kind of the thing yeah. um but i still think so if you're looking at an animal that's you know heavily marbled and stuff and it was a fast growth it takes a lot of time to develop these flavors mm-hmm. in an animal and um mm-hmm. You know, dairy cow is a perfect thing, even though they're lean, but they've been around for a long time. So they've developed a lot of a lot of cool flavors in mm-hmm. there and their muscles are developed and they have better intermuscular fat versus subcutaneous fat and all this stuff. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's great. I mean, we sh- there's no reason to not be utilizing those animals.
1: Yeah. Um, and then also, f- I mean, hamburgers, too. I've-, I've heard there's like dairy hamburgers. out there. Oh, yeah. 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 It's cool. Um, I wanted to also talk about your travels. Like You, you travel a bit and you eh, a little bit, a little bit, a little bit. Um, Japan? Have you been to Japan?
0: No, I haven't. I'm kind of scared to go. I think it might ruin me forever. Let's talk about Uh, that. Why? um, Well... Because you love Japan. I know that. I do, and all signs point to that being like just like the ultimate, like, oh, my God, the coffee, ah, the beef, ah, everything, (laughs) and obviously the sushi and and just the way, the attention to detail that they have over there culturally and just, you know, one guy making rice for 30 years to make the perfect grain of rice. I mean, that is insane. I love that. Um, Yeah, yeah I think maybe I should wait and go there after, but isn't that what after you, we retire so we could really spend some time there,
1: but isn't that kind of what you've done with with Franken barbecue? You really have spent unintentionally the out- maybe. sure sure, I'm not intentionally, um, of course, but, but like, that's kind
0: of where my brain goes yeah. like, that is so awesome, like this one craft that is just so finely honed um,
1: yeah, I should I should not go to Japan for a while. It just, for sure, <laughs> um, I'm sure you've had offers to extend Franklin to Japan. Is that yeah, in? A, a little bit? Um, eh, it would never happen. Yeah, there's no way. I feel like we don't have the right wood. Really, that's that's what's holding you back. The wood. So well, we don't want to. Yeah, yeah. Ah, there you go. That's <laughs> there's that look. too. There's that too. We already work way too hard. Um, you write about extabari from in from northern Spain. Yeah, have you I've, been
0: there? I have not eaten there, but Jordan has oh, okay. uh, a few times. And uh, man, it is so, so high on my list. Um, I think we're going to try to go there next year to go eat some dinner. Um, Man, that guy seems so awesome. And that's kind of that meal. The first time that Jordan went there, I think, was kind of the beginning of the uh, steak book. Um, He just had like a huge aha moment. And, you know, that's going. like, man, I just had the greatest steak in my life. Oh, my God. Like he was so inspired by that.
1: I feel like I've never been there either, and I, I've read about it, and it's kind of like the place I want to go next. It just seems like yeah, he's... it's definitely the place I want to go next. That's amazing. We ask all of our guests on the Taste Podcast um, if there was a dream cookbook project um, in the works in your brain. No, no deadlines. You know, no restrictions. Hmm. What would that be for you? Oh my gosh, I've never thought about it. Hmm.
0: Probably a picture, a pop up book of crispy tacos. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Let's see how this
0: workshop I'm just is. making this up on the fly Of but, course, uh, that's
1: the beauty of it
0: Yeah, you know, just look at that all day and, Oh my gosh No recipes Just, know. the is the crispy tacos inspir- of Texas? Of anywhere Yeah I don't discriminate
1: If it's a taco and it's crispy, I'll eat it Aaron Franklin, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast Absolutely,
0: thanks for having me
2: Here's Matt talking coffee with the folks from Intelligentsia, Go Get Em Tiger, Counterculture Coffee, and Minatis.
1: Thank you for coming in. I um, wanted to start um, by just um, asking each of you, and I'll start with you nicely, give me one word for espresso. What comes to mind? One word.
3: Life. <laughs> Down the go. <laughs> Life. I hate this question. Uh, <laughs> What's the point? But it, uh, Complicated? Yeah. yeah. Complicated.
4: I would say underrated.
3: Underrated. Interesting.
1: Clap in the audience. And Jeff, one word for espresso.
5: Uh, I'm, I'm going to say
1: R. Kelly. Oh, man. I
3: heard a boo, too, in the audience.
4: That gives it a bad connotation. Wow. Jeff. I think
3: he's trying to give it a bad connotation. He is. Okay, so Jeff hates espresso. That's a fact. I don't- that's the context. Espresso. Speaking to the microphone, Jeff, so we can pick oh, it up. I'm, yeah. I'm so, uh, Jeff, I'm going to go to you. For the, for the record, I
5: do not hate espresso. Okay. You, pretty, however, you...
3: Je- but Jeff, you're you're the you're a he's financially vested in espresso, so he cannot say he hates espresso. Okay. So Jeff is for the background. Jeff is a co-founder of Intelli- Intelligentsia, which
1: sells a shitload of espresso. We do. But we do. We went to Africa together. I wrote about it in the magazine. You told me we were walking through um, a coffee farm in southern Ethiopia. You, you made this, this statement, I do not like espresso. Explain. See? <laughs> yep, I set it up that way.
5: Yeah, so, you know, I mean, espresso can be very good. can be very tasty. Uh, and it's done a lot of great things in this world for this industry. Uh, and it's responsible, I think, for... Uh, a lot of the accomplishments that we've made as an industry. It's also responsible for some of the worst um, developments in our industry, and I see it as a tremendous obstacle to furthering the cause of quality, especially as it relates to uh, the work of coffee farmers.
1: You So you're tying it directly to coffee farmers? Yes. That's nicely respond. You own um, t- two cafes in... Los Angeles, and you sell a lot of espresso.
6: Yeah, I think he's talking about you know how good we can actually make sure it's a fair representation of the farmers' work. You know how good we end up serving it is ultimately that last, you know, impression of what that coffee is supposed to be. So for me, I'm like, well, I just make sure you know I don't mess up his job, you know, and, yeah. and mess up his great work of making sure the green coffee is good, you know. So, Roman.
4: Well, I just feel it's very underrated because, like Jeff said, it can be very, very bad when it is bad, but. Given the cultural context, so it is a very, it's like what um, Kyle said earlier, it's like whiskey, it, it's an acquired taste. So if you don't grow up like a European drinking espressos all the time, then it's going to, it's going to taste very strong, it's going to taste yeah. very bitter, but when you get that God shot, it's, it's amazing.
3: Kyle, what is a God shot? We were talking about it, it's like one out of 20, right? I mean, one out of 20 in, like, the best coffee bar in the world <laughs> so, would be, like, an incredible Godshot, which that's a term I haven't heard for, like, 10 years. I It's God Godshot's awesome. I love it. Uh, but it's, it is uh, – espresso has a ton of, like, inherent defects and problems. You are squeezing water through a wafer of coffee at hundreds of pounds of pressure, and it's meant to fail. Um, and it's meant to be bad. Uh, which wow. is why we have uh, kind of worked around it. Like we kind of like got stuck with espresso, and then we had to make it not suck. Yeah. Um, and I, I think like the filter coffee stuff, and the stuff that Jeff is has really pioneered as a green coffee buyer, uh, which is like more focused on the provenance of the coffee, on the specific uh, flavors of you know this uh, Ethiopian coffee or uh, this Ecuadorian coffee or this. Uh, Peruvian coffee, and then the farms within that. Um, espresso is just a way to brew coffee. It does impose a lot of uh, specific uh, nuance to it. Yeah. But, okay, to answer your question, a god shot is uh, sweetness is king.
4: Yeah.
3: Uh, and if you get, like, just amplified, resonant, beautiful sweetness, that's, like, the surfboard yeah. and all the beautiful other uh, characters, whether it's, like, the floral or you know, yeah. vanilla or chocolate, they ride the surfboard of, of sweetness. Of- Who thinks about
1: sweetness? Show of hands for their coffee. Just be honest. So we've, we've got about half
6: in the audience. Right? You know, I don't think about sweetness often. For me, it's honestly it's a feeling. You know, okay. I, I, I said this earlier. I'm like, you know, coffee or a shot of espresso that I enjoy most is something that I feel as opposed to something that I'm going to be having a session with and I'm going to be drinking for an extended amount of time. That shot of espresso represents two to three sips to start my day, where I'm like, man, I need that to work. I need to feel it, and I need to get on my business, you know. So,
1: I want to go to you, nicely. I want to find. I want to hear you speak with customers every single day at your cafes. You're working the bar often. What do you wish more coffee drinkers knew about coffee? I'm going to
6: go down the line because I know there's going to be different opinions. There's where I would I would use the word complicated. Uh, where I would. I would hope that the coffee drinkers that I meet, and then then the idea of me is like, I think you you qualified it in the in the email, like what's a typical coffee drinker? And I was like, well, what's typical? I mean, how my grandma had it was different than maybe how his grandma had it, you know? And that I think is relatable enough to understand that we've all come from cultures and backgrounds that appreciate it a lot differently. And so, um, typical or the coffee drinker that that was tough for me to wrap my head around, and especially on where we are in Venice. I mean, we literally see everything—bums to billionaires—and. I mean, a lot of those bums are, you know, just disguised as billionaires. We'll be billionaires in one day, and, you know. I, I, uh, you know, I wrote the joke a lot differently, actually. My man Derek heard me say it and deliver it a lot differently, you know. But nonetheless, you you feel what I'm saying. You're crediting like, your writer. I, love I got it. to. I got Appreciate to. I mean, that. I'm here as a result of a lot of these people sitting here. So I'm, yeah. yeah, and in this room. So um, yeah,
3: let's go down, uh, Kyle. Just tell me what what do you the, think? Yeah, I mean, I think specifically like the people who go to Intelligentsia or. Uh, Go get them, Tiger, or Monati's, or drink counterculture coffee. Uh, Just the uh, astounding improbability of the thing that you're about to enjoy. Uh, If you live in L.A. and you patronize one of these shops, you are drinking the top 1% of the coffee in the world. And the reason that it is that is because uh, from uh, seed, a farmer made a choice to dedicate their Life's work to a way of doing things, which is five, ten times as hard as doing it the commodity way. And then, what's commodity? Let's define that for our audience. Bulk coffee sold on an open market, and the markets fluctuate based on supply and demand. There's no flavor distinction. It's all below what you know, you like, well below what what we would sell.
5: It's not. It's not valued based on how it tastes.
3: Yeah, Yeah, more or less. Exactly. Yeah, so, like, I think, you know, and then all the way, and, like, you know, I opened Intelligentsia in Silver Lake in 2007. And, you know, we kind of, like, spawned a lot of, like, jokes about baristas, like, waxing their mustaches and telling you all about the farm and all this. And it's, like, easy to make fun of, right? Because it's, like, I don't need all that shit. Just give me my fucking coffee. I, like, get it. I totally get it. But the reason that that is essential, the storytelling has become such a feature, is because it is like, you have to have every person in the chain of custody operating at fucking Michael Jordan level greatness to deliver the coffee that like we all get for $4. Well, we were going to get into... Pr- that is a, an applause from the audience, and we can get to the price, because
1: we all can agree that coffee is not expensive enough, and we don't pay enough for coffee. Um, Brahman a little bit more about what you think your end user needs to maybe know a little bit more about coffee that you wish.
4: I'm going to harken back to what Nicely said, that it is complicated. Most people that I've educated, not only here in LA, but I came from, I recently came from living in Southeast Asia for the past three years. So this concept of specialty coffee has spread very globally. And a lot more people, particularly in that part of the world, where it is an origin, there are lots of origin countries around that area Vietnam, Thailand, and Indonesia, and they're willing to pay the price. But that, that market there is also very young. Um, it's as young as the LA market, about five, six years, to be two 12 three- years. Okay, 12 years. <laughs> but really, the really good coffee came when, when your shop came into play, we'll right? Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, but it's, it's complicated. And a lot of what I think consumers fail to realize is unlike wine or liquor or any food product is that they don't hold coffee in such high regard. So they think of it just as easy, easier than expected. And then when they come to classes like a brewing science class or try to make espresso themselves, they don't really understand like why does this taste so bad. So it's about educating the consumer, but also a lot more consumers now, because of how coffee and specialty coffee has grown over the past twenty years. Really, it's they're a lot more educated, and they're a lot more they're a lot more questions, and they're a lot more curious. So I'm very hopeful.
1: I want you to hear, hear from Jeff, but I want we will come back to the the origin of Los Angeles coffee. There was this eight years ago, twelve years ago. So that's controversial and also very interesting. But Jeff. Sure. We'll get to it's that. It's not but, controversial. Okay. Jeff, <laughs> less I'm to, with you. It's 12, 12 years. To get to the point... Oh, 2007. Um, one, one thing you wish customers just... Maybe something anecdotal from being on farms a lot and that being your, your, your life. Well, it's quality. It's
5: quality. Uh, because it's a word that's it's really easy to say and we, we throw it around and we talk about this connection between the value of coffee... Whether it's to to you as a as a coffee drinker, what's the value of it to you? Is it tied to the the taste, uh, and the value to the farmer, who really is the the artist? They're, the, they're the, the primary producer, and all of us do a lot of work to to curate and to um, make sure that we shepherd uh, coffee to its final destination uh, without without spilling a drop of quality out um, inadvertently. By mishandling it, and we, we play our part in the creation of um, or the, the interpretation and delivery of quality, but the quality of a coffee its, its true intrinsic potential is defined by the things that happen on the farm. yet the farmer tends to be completely invisible, uh, usually behind this this wall of um, of artifice mm-hmm. and fashion, and ultimately, I you know one of the questions I think you, you have to ask yourself if if you're thinking about well, how do we, how do we make sure that quality is somehow attached to the farmers' work? You know, we first have to come to a, a collective definition of what, what the hell is quality? You know, how do I measure it? What does it look like? What does it taste like? And if you go around the room and ask everybody what's quality, I imagine we'll get uh, 15. Some different people might answers. say espresso. We might get 15. <laughs> yeah, and some people might say it's French roast, and some yeah. people might say. It's it's coffee that tastes like peaches, and some might yeah. say it's sweet coffee. Some might say it's coffee with bitterness, yeah. and there's room for all that. I mean, if you you're a hip hop dude, right? You're a New York guy, In, uh, yeah. you know. So you'd say Biggie Smalls, Black Moon, Biggie yeah, Smalls, like quality, not quality, quality. I mean,
3: quality. quality. Yeah, yeah.
5: Uh, Nas, the most yeah. quality. 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 Tribe Called Quest. Early, early
1: career Nas no, only quality. Sorry. KRS One. Wow. I mean,
5: KRS One quality. On me. Okay. So, but. Quality. It's all quality, but it's very different. Karis One, Biggie, Tribe—they're different. Um, Sean Puffy Combs, <laughs> n- maybe not quality. Not quality. You know, there's.
6: Yeah. You, you can, guy, though, for naming out a decent amount of hip hop artists, though. <laughs> no, you Jeff can. Uh, uh,
1: Jeff is low key. No, He'll Jeff. go from Malcolmist to <laughs> he's like. Not, you know, he's got a catalog. Yeah. No,
5: but so so in in this realm, we can all come to a pretty clear and quick definition of what's quality, what's not. In coffee. It's really fucking hard right now because there's so much noise and misunderstanding about what are, from what does quality derive, what are the markers, what are the indicators, how do I know it when I see it, and more importantly, how do I know uh, when it's not quality?
3: Well, and the problem with the markers and the indicators is that the pretenders are getting better at the markers and the indicators without the substance. Yes, that's true. Yeah. It's harder to discern
1: and parse. I want to uh, talk about roasting because I think we, we, we talk about the farmer being important. And, of course, we all agree. But then you get to roasting. And this is a Kyle and Bronwyn question because you both now – you roast now. And you work for counterculture which roasts. So, so the question is, is, like, really, how important is roasting to this actual
3: chain that we're kind of trying to build right now? I mean, roasting is uh, – it's essential, uh, <laughs> you don't want to try it the other way. Yeah. <laughs> People have, I'm sure. It's not good. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's People clue, have. Right?
5: White, white coffee. Did you read about it? White, it like yeah, White Zombie was like coffee. a
3: Vietnam thing yeah. where it was like barely roasted and it was like super sour. Well, and it was, it, I, mean, um, I mean, I don't know if the question is like how important is it to roast? Uh, no, that's not, because I think it's more like the actual roasting. How important is that stuff? Yeah, I mean, the roaster plays a few... The roaster is not just the roaster. The roaster is the buyer first. And that, you know, it's interesting. When I, I started in coffee in Seattle, uh, along these yeah. people flanking me also did. Um, and uh, I was terrified of Bronwyn uh, yeah. <laughs> when she came in. Uh, but... Uh, and. I'm very scary. In Seattle, it was very espresso culture. It was very like the roaster and the barista, like they, they define everything. And then I joined Intelligentsia, and Intelligentsia was like, the roaster's job is to get the fuck out of the way, the quality of the coffee. And to some extent, like that's true. The roaster does get to author a part of that story. Um, But their primary goal should be to emphasize what's already great in the coffee. And that is... Which is Jeff, what Jeff's talking about. Right. And and that is hard.
4: It is so hard.
3: Talk about the difficulty in
4: roasting, because a lot of this audience
1: might not know what actually goes into roasting. So
4: if you think about the roaster, particularly, so the farmer, the producer, they've grown all of these wonderful coffees. And you as the roaster are like the chef to really highlight this one ingredient, this one product, and give it so much glory. And it can go very wrong so many ways. Because you're working with this machine that...
3: Usually 50 years old or more. Yeah.
4: Yes. Or, or not. Yeah. And there's a lot of variables. There's air, there's heat, there's... It's science in one big thing. Okay, you, you're, you're thinking about physics, you're thinking about chemistry, you are a chef of yeah. one, one particular thing, and you may never have roasted this particular coffee before, and you use, like way back when I was roasting, mm-hmm. they didn't have lovely systems to track, mm-hmm. you know, how the, the heat. And yeah. so just like a good chef, you're using part of it as art, your senses, but also you're using a lot of science.
1: And you can really fuck it up pretty easily you can, too.
4: You can mess it up really. Yeah, it's really like a souffle, really bad.
1: right? Okay. <laughs> I want to get to nicely too because I want to explain through your statement now, like what is a multi-roaster cafe versus a uh, Intelli or now, Go Get'em, which is now as a roaster. I mean, you roaster and coffee. I stuff.
6: mean, look, I can talk on multi-roaster programs and everything, but I don't. I am a single roaster. Oh, sort of single. Guy. you are single. Sorry. Okay. I, we started He's monogamous. Out, we oh, start, you know, too. I am a I'm a dedicate to some philosophies, you know. Okay. And I've tried my best to, you know, uh be a good representation of those. So we started out as a four barrel account and then we work with Cat Cloud. Now, uh Cat and Cloud now and right. they've been fantastic to work with offering a dynamic range of coffees that we can play with. I mean, I often thought that the challenge of, you know, multi-roaster programs and having to toggle multiple roast, you know, philosophies and try and make all of those taste delicious was you know, it's it's arduous alone with just a, a single origin coffee trying to highlight, you know, all the best yeah. qualities of that coffee, let alone maybe three different ways it might have been roasted, you know. So uh, so I, I like working with just one roaster. I've got a great relationship. I mean, they listen to, you know, the styles of profiles we would like to okay. offer in our cafe. They're fantastic. So, Picali, used to be multi.
3: Yeah, we were multi-roaster, and it was great. I mean, we started off... Uh, I mean, I think, first of all, there's, like, two ways to be multi-roaster, and mm-hmm. one is, like... Like, whatever the brand is hot, you just buy some other coffee, and you don't taste it. Um, I had actually had the privilege of of getting a chance to buy some coffee when I worked at Intelligentsia, mm-hmm. and getting uh, sort of accustomed to QC protocols where you bring in a lot of different coffees, and you taste them blind, and and then you, you choose the ones that are the highest quality. And so when we started GMB, that was kind of our premise. We wanted to have all the roasters send us their best coffees, and we wanted to cherry-pick the coffees blind and, and select them without knowing how much they costed or anything like that. And so it was, like, many, many times more work to do that, and I'm not complaining. We're it was fun, though, right? Yeah, yeah, it was a lot of fun, and it was very worthwhile, and, like, we have a database that still exists somewhere of, like, everybody's best coffee from uh, 2012 through... Uh, you know, 2016 or 2017. Um, So uh, we we hit a point, though, with the multi-roaster thing where we just started to feel like, well, first of all, when a barista takes a coffee, they are in conversation with the roaster because each roast, each coffee, especially when you're working with a bunch of different roasters, they all extract differently. They all have their own sort of nuance and, and like, you know, depending on the machine or the person behind it or the philosophy of the roasters. And I think we realized that our quality was capped by our lack of familiarity with what we were offering. With a single like a control basically. Yeah, yeah and so we realized that you know if we could sort of level up and and take like the next rung in the supply chain under our own custody that we would be defining the quality higher up in the more definitive moment and we were just ready for it i just want to, is there somebody brave
1: in the audience who can raise their hand this is like some complicated shit right this is very in the like weeds. can anyone admit that like this is like really complicated because thank you in the back, like. Coffee is... No, it's extremely in it, the weeds. It's in the weeds, but, but this is what coffee... This is the third way. This is what craft coffee is all about, these topics. And this is really what informs the cafe and the roasting. So I just want to say, like, it's it's cool to have these these individuals speaking about these topics on the record in front of you. So I, I hope it's not going over anyone's heads. I, I just think it's important. I want to to appreciate it. This it definitely opportunity.
6: is. No, I'd no, appreciate this opportunity, though, too, oh. to give us this scope to discuss it in a way. Uh, I mean, thank you. I oh, mean, shut we, up. we understand that, you know, this uh, amount of attention has been given toward, you know, to food for the better part of, you know, two, 20 years. You know, we've got channels dedicated to it now, you know? So our ability to, you know, focus on it, talk about it, discuss it in the medium that makes most sense for our generations now, I mean, I think it's fantastic. So cool. thank you.
5: Well, I'd like to... Oh.
6: It's, it's, it's cool. Uh, I'd like to
5: suggest, suggest something as another, another means of, of framing uh, exactly what we've all been talking about uh, with regard to the roaster and, and the barista and what, what's our role in all of this and from where does quality derive? and I was thinking a, a, a good analogy that maybe is easy for us all to, to sink our teeth into is this idea that if, if coffee is a song and... The artist, the original artist. There's a songwriter who makes it. So, you know, uh, yesterday, amazing song, right? It, it makes you emotion. Uh, it makes you emotional. Makes you want to cry. Uh, you've heard a dozen different singers sing it over the years. Paul McCartney wrote that, and he crafted something that has this defined intrinsic beauty. It's a composition that's gorgeous, and it's dripping with intrinsic quality. But then it takes a singer and uh, and a piano player, another musician. To bring it to life, to give it to give it expression, to make it visceral and allow you to feel it. Uh, and then it takes at the end a sound engineer uh, who's taking what was, was laid down by the musicians and the singer and just tweak the knobs a little bit and make sure the resolution, the clarity comes, uh, comes through brilliantly, and that 's when it becomes this work of this masterpiece, right And in that, that analogy, the barista. Is the sound engineer? They're taking the the raw recording and they're they're just finessing it and they're playing with the levels until it until it really feels great. And each of them might do it a little differently. Steve Albini might do it differently than than somebody else, but they're they're putting their stamp on it. The the musicians are interpreting what's there, and and between the three of them, they produce something that's incredible. But I I don't think as we as coffee consumers, oftentimes we we pay attention to the singer, yeah. we don't pay attention to the songwriter, and that's where um, the industry has a lot of, of growth in front of it mm-hmm. if we want to build a better, more more articulate, um, and a better platform, yeah. really, for quality to, to thrive. And that's where this, um, coming back to the... <laughs> I feel a little bad now that I, I dropped a, a big stinky poop in the audience with the, the R. Kelly comment. <laughs> I want to clarify that. I mean, the... The, uh, <laughs> and he came the, back to it, too. Yeah. Y- you know, I mean... You know, he's a man y- of here, metaphor. Yeah, you you I kind of it forgot about it. that, Jeff. <laughs> we know what you meant, man. Go ahead. Here, here's, what I was going, here's where I was going with that. Is that, you know, there's... Uh, this, this person produced some things that are, are really beautiful in the world that, have, that have, have had an impact, a positive impact in the world. Uh, and Espresso has done that. Uh, but this person is also a, a real... Horrible human being and, and has created a lot of distress in the world. And espresso has also done that.
1: Wow. And... There's truths about espresso that are behind every door. When you I'm, open the door.
6: I'm grateful to say that's not my impression of it, man. That, that, that <laughs> is, uh, yeah. I, I can't sell espresso that this way. Is, this is a... Uh, oh, sorry, Let me, can't Jeff. Do it. I'm gonna, I
3: mean, a, Jeff has demonstrated the high and the low yeah. of his metaphorical prowess. No, we're going... <laughs> this
4: comes from his liberal arts
5: education.
3: I'm into it. Um, I mean, you definitely did not cook up that whole songwriter thing right now right uh, well no. it was good most, it
5: was good most of it but i'll just i'll just I mean, r kelly r kelly inspired me i'll distill jeff's
1: to his second metaphor the more fortunate one i'll say that it was like let's put the technical grammys on during prime time yeah. obviously no one is doing that like the technical grammys are obviously still at 5 p.m but maybe it will change one day, and maybe there will be an audience for technical Grammys. I want to pivot to the sunny state of coffee in Los Angeles is the name of this, and we are in L.A. Uh, talking about coffee, and as I said at the top, this is a great city. But let's talk about why this city in particular is very special. Jeff, you don't live here, but you started Intelligentsia here. Um, we'll start with you, and then we'll go down. I just want to hear a little bit about that first moment when you opened Intelli here in Silver Lake and the significance of it. And then I think we'll just move down a little bit because everyone okay. has Okay, I
5: mean, it was... It was- Gorgeous and exhilarating and exciting because we'd been we started in 1995 in Chicago, and it wasn't until and we'd been we been learning about coffee, building our craft, uh, trying to get better at what we do, trying to understand it, and then trying to convince Chicago consumers to get into uh, into quality and, and start to really care about all this nuance of coffee and and it was like banging your head against the wall a lot because um, you know I, I love Chicago it's my city. Uh, but it can be very stubborn and pragmatic and and not necessarily all that ready to embrace new things. Meat
1: and potatoes yes. town. I'm from uh, Michigan. And so, say that. and so
5: it came out here, and, and all of a sudden we opened a store in Sunset Junction, and we're doing the same thing we did in Chicago, but uh, applying everything we'd learned up until that point. So we were, we were breaking a few different um, paradigms, which...
3: Yeah, had I want Kyle to, to talk well. about
1: that because you were working there, the paradigms that were being broken.
3: Yeah. Well, L.A. didn't have this thing. And it was interesting for me because I moved down from Seattle and Seattle had this espresso culture. And, it, it, you know, there was like there was a thing about baristas. Every cafe in 2005 in Seattle had to pour latte art. You come down here and it's just like not like it's just not. It was not happening. What was here? Uh, so, so the two places. Uh, well, okay. So there, like, there was groundwork, uh, which was notable. Um, Cafe Lux had opened in Santa Monica, and they were like a vivace uh, sort of account. But um, with respect to them, like, they weren't really like that. They weren't like changing people's minds. And Intelligentsia. Or what I mean, I think part of it is we landed in Silver Lake. Part of it is, like, we gave no fucks, and we just kind of decided, like, we were going to... If there was no template here, if there was no expectation, then there was, like, we could rewrite... We could write the rules. And so I don't think people realize, like, at the time, that coffee shop brewed every cup of drip coffee to order, named the farm on the menu, offered many different coffees from many different farms in 2007... uh, and had a single-origin espresso and a blend espresso and all this stuff. You a menu. You had yeah. a menu of espressos. A which menu was of coffees. Never, you, could never choose, you could choose your appellation. You could choose, you know, your flavor profile. And the person behind the bar could tell you about it. And that's why we got mocked like, endlessly. But it was also why we had, like, three-hour lines uh, when we opened uh, to drink the coffee. It was, it was a – that was the definitive moment in L.A. sort of third-wave – coffee and it's interesting because only been 12 years uh but like i think you know i hope that coffee drinkers in this town sort of preserve that sense of history in the same way that angelinos have been so good at doing that with our other sort of iconic natural resources yeah well yeah well like well like whether it's like a restaurant you know that you know we all like okay so like intelligentsia in la was like I don't know. It was like Chez Panisse. Like it was like that. It was that level of sea change, and and not just in LA, because there were no rules. Everything we did was more ambitious, yeah. more turned up, and it was it was that was the beacon for specialty coffee in the world. Really, truly?
6: No, I give him credit for moving me down here. I mean, uh, yeah. What's your? It's, t- just explain it's every your history. Of, it, yeah, it's all. It's every. You know, anytime ask me, anybody asks me about how I got to Los Angeles, you know, I end up bringing up Kyle's name, um, uh, being the guy to convince Intelligentsia to forked down a decent amount of money to move this barista from Seattle to help, you know, uh, establish this place in Venice. And I didn't know that I was going to be working at the Silver Lake, you know, location for like 10 months and kind of, you know, what they had broken, you know, the rules for in in getting here and earned a certain amount of um, uh, reputation, if you will, you know, for being a certain kind of way, for giving no fucks, you know. Uh, Then I was that dude that, I mean, you know, I came along and all of a sudden, like... We gave a lot of fucks. We gave gave lots of fucks. They gave too many fucks. That was the... (laughs) To the, to the degree, though, where, you know, like, I remember I remember some of my first shifts on Barn, though, you know, the clientele uh, was a certain, like, had a certain amount of attitude with me. And being one of those baristas uh, in, you know, at Espresso Vivache, yeah, I was used to being treated a certain way. And I'll own that, you know, that because of the way we loved coffee, we loved espresso, we served it a certain way, you know, like, our clientele responded to us a certain way. And I think Silver Lake in Los Angeles was, you know or starting to come around to that. So, you know, that, that was the first sort of impression of those styles of people, that, man, these people really care about this. And then again, intelligentsia's commitment to be like, yo, we care about creating this culture in, of professionals, so we're going to find people that care enough about it, and we're going to bring them down here. And so, I mean, that you know I'm not here in Los Angeles if not for intelligentsia and for Kyle, you know, uh, to be saying, yeah, 10 years later, and, you know, after, you know, it was at the end of 2008 is when I moved down here, you know, that, you know, here I am. You know, that that shop
3: is the rootstock for L.A. specialty coffee. It's mm-hmm. like Campanile for restaurants. It, it, yeah, uh, Campanile is a great example. Brahman, do you have something to add about the early days?
1: Because you were here too.
4: Yeah. Um, not only... It was an interesting time in specialty coffee in general. And I think with counterculture, intelligentsia, Stumptown, they all started in 19, like in the mid-90s. And that's when they really start. And around 2005 to 2007, that's when the producer as really became highlighted within Specialty Coffee. And what's amazing about Los Angeles and why, you know, counterculture is here today as well as Intelligentsia and Sumptown and La Colombe and all of these other companies is... Go get them, And (laughs) (laughs) You were already here before then. Um, (laughs) I'm talking about the bigger guys. Uh, You have all of these companies that really started... I am a a
3: big guy. (laughs) You, You...
4: that's your opinion.
3: I am a very big guy.
4: <laughs> but you're not a tiny jogger, not like me.
3: <laughs> True. Wow. There's like a there's
1: like a measuring stick somewhere. If there. you could
6: if you could understand there's like even you know I could you know sense like a certain amount like there, you know people in the industry competed with each other or around each other knowing of each other you know yeah. the familiarity there to joke that way I mean. It's, no, it's, yeah. it's, it's awesome from my perspective, Lada too, of being one of, one of those baristas yeah. yeah, no, watching this. It, yeah, the, the podcast, the people, who it's
1: in your ears. It's, it's all love. Lots yes. of smiles here. I want to uh, also, we're going to go back like we do with the espresso question. I have one other question. Let's talk about ready-to-drink, RTD, those big-ass bottles of cold brew that you see everywhere now. Everywhere. Nicely, I'm looking at you. Let's start with you. What do you think about this? How, is this, how does this affect you?
6: Um... Oh, we don't bottle anything currently. We gave, you know, tried our hand at it, decided to do something else. But I think um, the idea of meeting people where they're at was big to me. You know, and when I serve people and understanding like if they come to me and they've been used to a caramel frappuccino, well then I'm going to make them something sweet and delicious to make sure they leave my shop happy. You know, now if a big bottle of cold brew is going to do that for me, you know, man, I'm happy to reflect on experiences that I've had where I've been like, yo, that was pretty good and, you know, I'll speak on it, you know. So, again, if it allows me an opportunity to connect with a customer in a way that's uh, uh, genuine, that um, helps them patronize my business, you know, I mean, I'm happy about that. It, I, I see it in the bigger picture in the sense, you know, we're creating more coffee drinkers in a way that... Uh, uh, when they follow the history back or when they decide to dig a little deeper or go the next level, they end up finding places like ours. So it's like a gateway drug to, like, filter to, like... It is I, to- a dr- I totally call my Spanish latte a gateway <laughs> latte. You know what I mean? Like, I just got to yeah. own it, you know what I'm saying? I like it. You meet them where they it's sweet and delicious, you see them every mm-hmm. day, you know?
3: Kyle, what do you think about RTD?
6: I am very concerned that people who
3: buy coffee in a bottle... At the grocery store, might think that that's what good coffee is. That's the hammer I wanted to drop. I mean, that's what that's I actually think it's I, like. I, I so RTD is like a real economic driver for this industry, and I like will not discount that. Of course, not. RTD is also putting more coffee in people's homes, and I think that's you bottled too, right? Yeah, I mean, we bottled and then sold it the same day. We didn't. We didn't but do that. You the, bottled.
6: You yeah, bottled your cost. But
3: putting something in a bottle is not the same as my pasteurizing. Point being you made
6: it ready to drink for them.
3: Yeah, but we do that anyways. But right yeah. then and there, no, 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 they no. come
6: I, in. My, my 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 thing is like I always I, I thought you guys were putting, doing it well. So I thought you got, I thought you. If anybody would have taken the next level, would have been you guys.
3: Right. I mean, it, it cannot be taken to the next level. Uh, there is no. I, I don't like any of it. I think it all tastes bad, with the exception of the La Cologne draft latte, which is wow. fucking delicious. Wow, that's a controversial it's, statement. It I has feel. nothing to do with the coffee quality. No. It's just like engineered. It's like, it's like a Guinness. <sighs> it's perfect. Yeah. Uh, bravo, La Colombe. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but the the like the black. I mean that that is stale coffee. There is no way to like it is not a It is not a shelf stable product. This that's in and like I as a business owner understand every single one of the motivations for people to want to literally bottle this thing and ship it out to people's homes. Coffee freshness is a, is a thing. It is one of the things. And, and, and that's like every stage. And so I'm like, yeah. yeah. So like, I'm, I'm, I'm like down for everybody getting their money. Like get paid, please get paid. Um, but I am. But
5: who who's getting paid for, those, uh, art, for the La Colombe? I mean, La Colombe
3: latte. should get paid for the draft latte because that <laughs> shit is genius. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but uh, that's you know everything that we talked about for the whatever the forty minutes that led up to that question was not that. Exactly, and that's why I wanted to leave it at the end. Bronwyn, yeah, add a I little agree.
4: Bit. It's yes, it is a great way to get consumers to drink more specialty coffee, but it's not special. Whatever Jeff yeah. has done. Or other coffee companies, like counterculture spend so much time really building partnerships with other producers, just like Intelligentsia, and it just seems to discount everything that they have worked for. And it doesn't taste bad, but it's not that great.
3: And then there's the farmer. Where does the farmer come in and to art- drink? Have you ever seen a farm name on an Big. RTD bottle? <laughs> have you ever seen a country on one? I think maybe I once, yeah I
6: mean <laughs> I mean there well there's oh yeah, yeah when we when we bottled it, we did uh, state what coffee you know it was you know that we brewed, you know and yeah. I mean I, I, so I will say like I've seen some of that on. Um, packaging, So, I mean, that, but that helps. Again, it's if, if somebody's discerning enough to then read, you know, what country it came from and care enough about that, well, then the next time that they're in, you know, a cafe and they decide to ask, you know, well, what country did this brew I'm about to have come from, you know? Again, if it sparks up enough of an organic conversation where we're creating rapport, we're, we're, creating, mm-hmm. an, we're creating an everyday customer, uh, that's helping coffee mm-hmm. as a whole. So, like, there's probably some people who feel shame
1: for drinking cold brew right now but Jeff's going to really make you feel like shame right now because we're going to talk about farmers and cold brew. Those two words, what does that mean to you?
5: What does that mean to me? Well, I mean, first of all, let me, let me just say, let me, let me drop a statistic on you. you know, there are uh, several uh, tens of million farmers, coffee farmers in the world, and over 90% of them uh, barely are meeting their, their basic needs. Uh, coffee is a six hundred billion dollar industry, six hundred billion dollars, and of that six hundred billion dollars, uh, less than eight percent, eight to ten percent, makes it back to the producing country. You know, and in the context of what I said earlier about the the song, you know, the song analogy, there's the songwriter, there's the singer, and there's the sound engineer. Uh, you know, music has a, a sordid history. If you think about the Motown era and, and how that went, where a lot of extremely talented artists and creators uh, never benefited from the work that made a shitload of money for other people. Uh, in, the con- in the coffee context, you know, I, I believe that the the pathway to making coffee farming a lucrative career for a farmer is creating a consumer base that... Believes in quality that that wants quality is willing to pay for quality. Uh, People are willing to pay for drinks. That's no, I mean that's been proven. There's plenty of people here who who will pay nine dollars for for opening a can of beer, yeah, or a beer. Um, Easy, you know. But how do you connect that to the work of a farmer? And one of my one of my great um, sources of of, uh, frustration with mediums like cold brew and RTDs, is that they mask. It's a medium that does not allow the work of the farmer to really be uh, displayed with any, with any resolution or clarity. The brew method
3: and the preservation method both are the of, two both dominant of them, flavors.
5: Yeah, those are the dominant flavors. So what you're tasting really is about as disconnected from the farm as it possibly could be.
3: And also the only way it stays on a shelf is if it's concentrated. And so all those things are concentrates... They're energy drinks. They're right? right. they're energy yeah, drinks. Yeah. Exactly, and so yeah. you know, and and it, the drug element of coffee, which
5: we
6: you know, it is a drug. I mean, if we could, I'm ex- down for the drug. Yeah, element. I mean, and accept <laughs> that. I think you know, a lot of those people that Everybody are treating knows. it like a drug and trying to get through their day. I mean, your UPS delivery driver, your teacher, your doctor, me whatever, in the morning, you in know, the morning, anybody, you in the morning, you in the morning. Anybody that does you know you know treat it more medicinally than culinarily or whatever. You know, I mean, I get that. You know, I mean, again, meeting them where they're at. You know, to End up seeing them in my cafe. That's my, that's my goal is to try and pull them in that way.
5: Well, and the thing that's, that's so beautiful about coffee that I think all of us were, were drawn to, I mean, obviously there's, there's community, there's the things that coffee does to bring people together. Uh, there's a lot of things that, that really are, are gorgeous about the coffee. Coffee as a medium for social interaction, for engagement, for cultural exchange. Uh, but then since there's the also. Since the beginning of the coffee shop. Since the beginning of the coffee shop. But there's also that's the, its this. Visceral love for coffee as a culinary, uh, as a culinary creation, as something that's so rich in detail and flavor, flavor expression and range. Uh, I mean, some of you were here drinking these Ethiopian and and Colombian coffees and Kenyan coffees, and the the dynamic range of sensory quality and flavor in coffee is enormous, and it's this wonderland that we can play in. It's a it's a miracle of nature that we can all celebrate, and the there is a very strong correlation or connection between the degree to which a farmer uh, works as an artisan, not a harvester, works as a craftsperson who's making something meant to be boutique and special, and the way a roasting company behaves and orients all of their systems and resources to maximizing and optimizing that, and the way a coffee shop hires people, uh, brings them across the country uh, to work simply to... Uh, to allow that expression to be there and that's where the real beauty is in coffee and that's where the value is in coffee and that's the difference between commodity coffee and specialty coffee and let me coffee. just
1: jump in i want to that's th- there's parallels obviously between this and cocktails and this and beer and what is the price for cocktails? I what draw that
6: th- parallel constantly, and we I want to ask. Our place after a uh, you know an original bootlegger, of Los yeah. Angeles, you know. So for yeah. us, drawing that parallel helps us create those regular yeah. customers and every day. I want to
1: close, and then we'll get to the questions. And I didn't prep you on this, but I want to know. We'll start, start with you nicely. How much should a cup of coffee be? Should should, should, a, cup, be, should a cup of coffee? How much should we pay be? for a cup of coffee?
6: I, I would love if you know. The same way I could get a canned beer or a bottled uh, you know, beer or something like that, you know, eight, nine dollars at a bar. If it was eight and nine dollars at my cafe, yeah. that'd be fantastic.
3: Now? I mean I think there should be a huge delta between uh, the low end and the high end of third wave specialty coffee and it should probably start at ten. Ten. Baseline ten escalating to twenty two. I mean, or beyond. beyond I mean, year. like, the, the same way. I mean, People are it, laughing in the like, audience, and that's legit. Like, 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 like by the way, like, I'm contemplating a world where, like, my entire business model, like, doesn't exist. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and so, like, oh, yeah, this yeah. question is scary. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, that's the work. Yeah. That's what it, it deserves. It, it, it,
4: yeah, I agree. It's, like, should be 10 till however much you, like, for rare for rare coffees, it should be just we like
1: We still have a tipping wine.
6: culture, so 8 yeah. to $9 allows for a dollar to $2 yeah. tip. And <laughs> your tip, for, you know what I'm saying, let's take care of your baristas, all right? You know? But $10 sounds nice, too. Don't yeah. Yeah. Wrong.
3: I still tip on a $10 glass of wine.
6: God bless you. Not oh, everybody yeah. feels that way. So yeah. You know what I'm yeah. saying? So,
1: And you, you, you. in the story that I wrote, you, I closed with this anecdote. You were in Silver Lake, and you were talking coffee with a bunch of dudes, and they were complaining about the price, and they were... Drinking shit beer for nine dollars a can. I mean that happens. Yeah, that, that happens all, all the time. All the it's
5: time. so <laughs> aggravating. I mean, you, you see it every day. People will go in the or airport buying a bottle and, of water for five dollars. Yeah, there you go. A little yeah. tiny bottle of water yeah, yeah. for five dollars. Why is this coffee four dollars? But it has origin,
1: there, guys. It comes from Fiji. Oh no, shade, sorry. Uh,
5: but I, I think you need, you know, like anything else, uh, you get what you pay for. If you want something that's crafted, that's beautiful, that's done, that's made with a lot of intention, that has a um, it was packed with an abundance of natural beauty and sensory delight, you pay for that and if you want something that just gives you some caffeine in the morning that's a different price uh, and I think what we need is, is an industry where the differences are a little more clear so consumers can make that choice for themselves.
1: Go to a coffee shop thank you panel, we are out of time you guys have all been amazing thank you. serious
3: honor for me to talk to you guys, I mean it I mean it this was a I truly love every person up here so it's this great. has been a, like a dream come it's true it's really so.
1: great thank wow. you panel thank you guys thank you Matt
3: thank you
2: the taste podcast is hosted by Matt Rodbard and me Anna Hiesel the show is produced by Gabrielle Lewis studio recordings by Pat Stango theme music by Steve Rydell Interviews are recorded live at Books Are Magic in Cobble Hill, Brooklyn and at Penguin Random House Studios in Manhattan. Visit Taste online at tastecooking.com. Thanks for listening.